Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, you and I are just one of the many podcasts in the HowStuffWorks family. There are many. Indeed. You should listen to all of them because they're all great. Uh, but we're going to talk about one project of the Stuff You Should Know podcast. Yes, Stuff You Should Know hosted by Josh and Chuck. They got back from Guatemala and they just put out these two podcasts about their time in Guatemala, what they saw, what they learned about the situation in the area, and also the work of this organization, uh, the Cooperative for Education, which we're going to call co-ed for the rest of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an organization that works with children to give them the education that they need to break out of this cycle of poverty. Right, because in the States, you know, we think it's pretty common for, you know, a kid turns Five, six, he goes off to school and then 18 years or <laughs> not 18 years <laughs> later, you know, and, they, and then we, we go through school, graduate, go to college, whatever. It's a natural part of life in the States for a lot of people in Guatemala, not the case. And so the work of co-ed is, is very important to try to reach out to these kids, get them textbooks, get them libraries, get them computers, all things that we take for granted in the States. And Molly and I wanted to follow up on the two really great podcasts that Josh and Chuck just put out about um, their time in Guatemala and the work that co-ed's doing, because we wanted to focus in on what's going on with the girls in that country. And it really draws upon some other podcasts we've done. Kristen, we've done a lot of podcasts that talk about how education is the key uh, for eliminating poverty in many developing countries. And I feel like we've always sort of talked about that in the abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have this really great case study we can look at in terms of Guatemala about how you can really take a situation that's not great for a lot of women and girls, give them the education and see how those problems can change with education. Yeah. And especially again, like when, when you, when research shows over and over again that when you really target girls in the developing countries, it can have 
just uh, enormous ripple effects throughout the entire society. So Molly, why don't we just uh, dig in a little bit to stats to give people an overview of the situation for girls in Guatemala? Because while education is not entirely accessible to both boys and girls, for girls, it's a lot less common for them to go to school and extremely uncommon for them to actually finish school as we would think of in the States. Right. So let's talk about, you know, sort of let's get the the sad stuff out of the way, because I think what happens in this country is you hear about all these problems and you don't know how to address them. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we'll show you how you can actually address them by helping girls get more education. So um, let's talk about the situation for women in Guatemala. Yeah. So just in terms of education, um, the average years the kid will go to school who lives in a rural indigenous community in Guatemala is only 1.2 years for girls. And that's compared to eight years for urban non-indigenous males. Um, and then in primary school, it's actually one of the few countries in Latin America where fewer girls will complete primary school than boys. And part of this is just because parents sometimes can't afford to send all of their children mm-hmm. to school. So they'll send the boys, but not the girls. They might keep the girls home to do the cooking, the cleaning. And, you know, they just don't realize that what they're doing is they're sort of cutting off all the future money-making opportunities these girls might have. Exactly, because uh, statistics have shown that that females who will complete a secondary education will earn 54% more than they would with no education compared to males who complete secondary education would earn 27% more than they would. So that's kind of one example of why uh, you hear over and over and over again that educating girls yields such a greater investment. Not to say that boys don't need education as well, but, um, you, you know, you, you get more, you get more ROI, if you will, return on investment. But it's more than just money making. It also has a tremendous impact on the health of a country. Uh, when a woman only has limited access to education, uh, she has a, a higher chance of dying in childbirth. Her children have a higher mortality rate when they are children. And it affects Guatemala's malnutrition rate, which is, you know, just, awful in comparison to other Latin American countries. It's the worst in Latin America and the fourth worst in the world. And so this is another example of how when you give a child education, they have more money to pay for the food, to improve their health, to buy medicines, things like that. It's it's more than just making sure they're set up for a career. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth noting, too, with the, the malnutrition issue, um, even though Guatemala's chronic malnutrition rate is the worst in Latin America, it isn't because it is the poorest country. It's not, a, per capita, it is not actually the poorest country in Latin America, but it has a worse malnutrition rate, which, like you said, it ends up affecting these girls more because it stunts their growth more than boys, and then, of course, will affect um, reproductive and maternal health. Uh, so I think that that is one indicator of the complex problem that that might be linked to education once again. So now we talked about the parents pulling the children out of school so that they can cook clean. And sometimes, you know, they just have to put them to work. Uh, Guatemala has one of the highest rates of child labor in the world. Uh, a number from UNICEF shows that 23% of children and young people between the ages of 7 and 16 are part of the country's labor force. They're often working in unsafe conditions. Uh, so if, you know, if child labor is a concern of yours, it all goes back to this idea of educating girls. Mm-hmm. And I think, Molly, one thing that we haven't mentioned that might also 
give people a, a better idea of of why the social situation is is going on and why there is such dire poverty and malnutrition. Guatemala was engaged in a 36-year civil war, mm-hmm. and um, the UN-sponsored Commission on Historical Clarification estimated that as many as 200,000 people were killed. And those numbers are even spotty because a lot of people um, were actually what's called disappeared mm-hmm. during the civil war in which they, you know, just literally disappeared. I mean, they were probably captured and killed, but... Um, uh, e- even still, uh, the, the country is kind of having to dig its way back out of, you know, I mean, imagine almost 40 years, four decades of, of civil war. I mean, it's, it's a pretty huge issue. And you know, Chris, when I was reading about this civil war, uh, came across something very heartbreaking, but certainly not limited to Guatemala in any respect is the use of rape and violence against women as an instrument of war, as a way to intimidate people in villages and to, uh, dominate the people you're trying to, you know, fight this idea of, of raping the women and committing violence against them has co- continued to this day. There mm-hmm. have been uh, high numbers of, of women murdered every year since the Civil War ended. And uh, it's it's really a big problem, this violence against women. The, the Guatemala Human Rights Commission traces it back to this war in terms of sort of institutionalizing this idea that women are your equal, mm-hmm. that you don't have to treat them with that sort of respect. And so I think that, again... You know, they've done these studies about educating girls for longer. And when boys see girls in the classroom for longer, they have more respect for them. So it's that might seem like such a silly comparison to make. But just by keeping a girl in school longer, you learn that, you know, they are your equals in some respect. Well, and I think that also brings up uh, an important issue as well, which is early marriage. Um, according to a 2004 UN report, 26% of girls in Guatemala between 15 and 19 years of age were either married, divorced, or widowed. And the interesting thing is, according to the country's family code, the minimum age for a girl to get married is 14 years, and she has to have parental consent if she's under 18, unless she has a child or she's pregnant. And one thing kind of linked to all of that is we found out that um, up until 2006, a rapist could be exonerated if he promised to marry his victim. Okay, so there we go. Um, <laughs> unless she was under 12 years old. I mean, those laws have been somewhat tightened since then, but um, kind of like you said, I think that it feeds into this cycle of uh, devaluing women and violence against women because um, you know, because the, the laws have been so loose, especially in terms of um, prosecuting rapists and mm-hmm. actually making it a, a punishable crime. Right. And so I think that's where we get stuck, Kristen, in this vicious circle in that, you know, women never get that respect because they are, you know, so devalued. For mm-hmm. example, sexual exploitation of girls. Sometimes it's the parents selling their own daughters into this lifestyle because they need the money and mm-hmm. because you're raised to think that, you know, the girl's not valuable for anything else. Right. Especially in um, the more urban centers, in Guatemala, it's uh, that the kind of child sex trafficking is uh, more common. And according to UNICEF, a statistic that we got was an estimated 2,000 Guatemalan children being sexually exploited. And the law has been doing little to protect them. So, again, just to hammer home this idea about educating girls is if the girl's in school and has this promise of having a career one day with the skills she's learning in school, perhaps there's less of a chance that... Uh, her parents will feel the need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also then she too is saved from an early marriage from having children very young because she's in school. 
preparing for her future career. Right. And, uh, I mean, obviously at this point we've painted a pretty, pretty grim picture, I think, of, uh, of what's going on in Guatemala. But just to reiterate what you've said, the kind of tangible benefits you'll see from educating girls, and this is shown in case study after case study, is that you have reduced rates of fertility because, for instance, according to USAID, um, half of Guatemalan women have a child before the age of 19 and 20% have two or more children by their 18th birthday. And then by their early 30s, many women have given birth to seven or eight Children, and if you're, you're you're caring for a family of eight or ten, you know, and when you're in dire poverty, I mean, what are you going to do? Obviously, education is probably going to be one of your last resorts, especially if you're in one of these rural indigenous communities where you know there's not a school on every corner. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to get textbooks or get in front of a computer, and so I think that's where we can kind of come back to the importance of groups like coed that is filling that gap, that is going in and and providing those resources for these people who otherwise wouldn't have it because it's not going to be a priority. The priority is, you know, putting food on their table and somehow getting by from day to day. So we've done a few podcasts where we'll talk about all these problems and then we'll say education can fix this because it does X, Y, and Z. Now, this X, Y, and Z, Molly, that you're referring to comes from USAID and it's pretty great stuff. I mean, it, it, studies have shown that educating girls will improve the health and survival rate of infants and children. Uh, it reduces the rate of fertility and greater use of modern contraceptive methods. You also obviously have higher rates of school attendance, attainment, and completion in the next generation. Like you said, we it's all about breaking that vicious cycle, and the women are keys to that because they have the most influence over their children mm-hmm. in the home. Um, and then we also have... As our Z, our number four, um, the improvements in the status of women within families, the local community, and the political arena. So, I mean, it's just, it's huge ripple effects, not only within these girls' lives, but also within their families, to the community, to the entire country. So bearing in mind that, that girls only get that 1.2 years of education in Guatemala, let's talk about how this organization, Coed, is going in and trying to change that and keep the girls in school and give them the resources they need to make money for their families to break the cycle of poverty. Let's talk specifically about how their programs accomplish that. Yeah, because as Americans, we might think of, we hear the mantra of like, yeah, stay in school. You know, like it's just something easy to do. But uh, in Guatemala, that is that is much, much easier said than done. So co-ed, again, we learned about them through Stuff You Should Know. They have these programs that uh, improve education in the hopes of then improving everything else, big ripple effect, uh, their main programs are providing textbooks uh, to middle schools in the rural areas who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them. Basically, co-ed will go in and buy the textbooks, and then the students will pay small fees to use them, which makes the program sustainable because then the community can go and buy the next set of textbooks when they need it. Right, because I think we should point out, too, that the country is so poor that they don't have some kind of tax base that right. the government can go in and, p- and pay for these books. And the same with the computer centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, co-ed will go in and buy computers so that uh, children can learn the skills they're going to need in this economy to have an entry-level job, which requires computer use. Uh, co-ed buys the computer, and then the students pay, again, a small fee uh, that's affordable for them to use the computers to learn basic you know, word processing, spreadsheets. They provide scholarships for young people. And, you know, we've read a lot of anecdotes about how co-ed will go to parents and say, you know, they the parents might just want the scholarship for the boys, but they'll show them, oh, you know, the girls need this scholarship. 
And I think one thing we've got to talk about, Kristen, because we've done so many podcasts about the books that really influenced us mm-hmm. when we were young girls is this culture of reading that co-ed works to foster in these small communities. These girls who have never seen books, which sounds so alien to us who have talked for, you know, hours about the Babysitter's Club and Nancy Drew and Ramona and all that. They'll take sometimes those first books that those girls ever see and teach them, you know, about a love of reading and build these little mini libraries. And that to me is, is sort of one of my favorite aspects of what co-ed does is, is fostering that um, love for knowledge and reading in these young girls. And just as an example of how important it is that co-ed goes and, and really fosters that culture of reading, Molly, like you said, one thing that they have to do is actually teach the teachers how to read to children. Mm-hmm. I mean, before co-ed goes in there, the, the, Teachers might just read a book aloud. But, you know, when you were a kid, like the, the exciting part about reading is following along and seeing the pictures and really engaging with the story and the words on the page. And uh, and, the, and the teachers weren't doing that. You know, they weren't. And, and by not doing that, it, it didn't really cultivate, you know, a kid's desire to read. So that's one important thing, too, that, that co-ed goes in and actually demonstrates. And they'll also teach the teachers how to use the textbooks, because I think a, a big problem in Guatemala has been that before the kids got the textbooks, they all copied down notes from the blackboard. There was no engagement with learning. And that's why, you know, if the kid couldn't even stay there for financial reasons, he would just drop out, join a gang, which are also a big problem in Guatemala. So going in and teaching a teacher how to use this textbook so that a kid enjoys going to school and enjoys learning about things um, is another vital service that they provide. Sounds like co-ed could also do a lot of work in the States <laughs> in terms of teaching kids to read. Anyway, um, well, ju- just to give uh, listeners, too, an idea of uh, more of an anecdotal idea of, of how their programs have benefited these schools, you know, because we've sort of been talking in the abstract. Um, I'm going to share the story of Juan Jose, who is a principal of middle school in Guatemala. Um, and when he started 15 years ago, the school that he worked at had 28 students, and only one of those was a girl, because like we said, it's far less likely for a girl to even go to school, and even if she goes to school, she's not going to stay as long as boys in her community. Um, so he said, knowing that the health and economic success of Guatemala communities were inextricably linked to the education of its girls, Juan Jose really made it his mission to try to get more girls into the school, try to equalize the ratio of boys to girls in the classrooms. And one thing that he had to do was demonstrate to these girls' parents that them leaving the home and leaving the work that they would have to do there and actually going to school would be beneficial in the long run for the girls at home. And so, first of all, he lobbied co-ed for books and computer training at the school, so he had all of these resources to begin with. But then he also added a home economics class and asked co-ed for equipment such as a refrigerator and sewing machine and mixers. Um, and that way, by having those kind of resources, he could convince the parents that the girls would be become better cooks and would keep the house better, since a lot of the parents just didn't see any point in educating girls. Like, why would they need... Why they need to read because they, their time would be better spent at home, um, and uh, and the strategy worked. There are now seventy over seventy five students at the school, and the number of girls and boys is close to equal. And you know, from a lot of stuff we talk about on the podcast, like we might bristle at the thought of like, oh, well, he's adding a home ec class to to bring more girls in, you know, teaching them to sew and cook. Like that is, those are essential skills in this country. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, I think it was a pretty 
pretty brilliant strategy on on his point as well to yeah. you know target those parents and convince them to get the girls into the classrooms because of course they weren't just taking the home ec classes they were also oh, by in the front way of, yeah they were also in front of the computers math. exactly exactly so coed has many examples of of these sort of anecdotes on their site, which is coeduc.org. But just to throw out some more statistics of how they're evaluating their program, um, if when the schools get the textbooks, they're experiencing a 68% improvement in retention of the information, a 67% increase in attendance, and 90% of those students indicate that the books have a significant positive impact on their ability to learn and retain information. So just imagine, like, going to school and for the first time having something to look at. Of course you're going to stay. Of course yeah. you're going to learn more. Of course you're going to see education for the first time as something that's worth investing in. So um, more anecdotes about about the people experiencing that revelation are on their site. And personally, it was pretty, for me, it was enlightening to read these anecdotes and to see these statistics because... You know, we take public education and textbooks and libraries and all of this stuff for granted. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, kind of a no brainer, like, oh, yeah, I mean, sure, provide, provide textbooks for poor children. That's great. But no, I mean, like, really, I do encourage you guys to, to check out the site because, um, it's, it's pretty powerful when you find out just what, a single textbook in the hands of a child can do. But then to take it back to the beginning of the podcast, the whole reason we went through all those, you know, fairly dismal statistics is you can read that website and just think about it in terms of a child. But when you think about it in terms of a whole culture of women that you can help Mm -hmm. by just by giving a child a textbook, that's what's really remarkable to me is again, you know, we've, we've said it several times on this podcast in the abstract about how educating women in the developing world has this huge impact on poverty but to read about co-ed's work and then to place women sort of in the center of your thoughts as you read it and knowing that that textbook and the scholarships that are available at co-ed and that fostering of a love of knowledge, when that can really change a whole society's perception of women, that's a huge, huge thing. Right. And when that perception changes, you also see the tangible effects in, you know, the health of the communities, violence in communities, birth rates, maternal health. Children sell everything, you know, I mean, it's there's really no no aspect that it doesn't touch. So now if you uh, listen to Josh and Chuck's podcast on uh, their trip, and I I encourage you to do so so you can get more information on the programs and the country, um, you know that there's a text campaign going on where if you text stuff to two zero two two two, co-ed gets a five dollar donation. You can also make donations on their site, which again is C-O-E-D-U-C dot org. And, uh, you know, co-ed is getting a tremendous help from all the SYSK fans, and we wanted to give them some help. So if you're a fan of ours and you haven't donated yet, please check out their site or text, again, the word STUFF, S-T-U-F-F, to 20222. You'll receive a text back asking you to confirm the donation and simply reply with the word yes to complete your donation. Messaging and data rates may apply. And remember, the campaign only runs through July 25th. Smelly, since we've been talking a lot about the power of reading and books, I thought it'd be good for our listener mail segment to maybe share a couple of reading lists. Reading lists. We've gotten so many. We love them. Keep them coming. Yes. Um, and this one is from Angela, and she is reading right now Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, which was very popular last summer as well. Uh, she says, after that, I'll probably move, up, move on to Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, 
She said, I will also read books by Sherilyn Kenyon, Janet Ivanovich, and Jennifer Cruzy. All right. And who was that reading list from? This was from Angela. Okay. I've got one from Lori, who says, based on your obvious love for the Ramona books, I wanted to recommend to you for your summer reading list, Beverly Cleary's Two Memoirs, The Girl from Yamhill and My Own Two Feet. I was delighted to find out that some of my favorite details from Cleary's fiction came from her own experiences, such as naming a doll Chevrolet. Beyond that, though, Clary was a very cool woman who had just as much spunk as her fictional heroines. So if you're looking for a summer reading list, The Girl from Yamhill, My Own Two Feet. All right, and to cap things off, I've got a reading list here from Jim, and he is going to read Collapse by Jared Diamond, The Heretic's Daughter by Kathleen Kenter, Men with the Golden Torque by Simon R. Green, The Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Bloom, and The God Engine. By John Scalzi. The God Engine. That sounds interesting. Sounds interesting. So, again, keep the summer reading list coming. Keep any emails coming to us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, you can get in touch with us via our Twitter, which is at momstuffpodcast, or our Facebook, which is Stuff Mom Never Told You. And during the week, you can also check out our blog, also titled Stuff Mom Never Told You, at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 